You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Hey, good morning. How are you? Welcome to Living Way Church. And I am excited to uh, to dive into today's topic um, or today's message. We are in a series called Redemption. And you know, everybody needs a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance or a fifth chance or as long as they're alive, we need a chance. And uh, this series is about those who who maybe society has given up on or maybe uh, you have given up on or maybe you feel like you should be given up on, that maybe you've gone too far or that person's gone too far or that spouse or that friend or that, that child of yours. Um, it's for those who need another chance. So what we're doing is we're kind of diving into the stories of the runners the people that were uh, running from God, running from family, running from people. Last year, we, we kicked off with, with uh, the prodigal, the great running story of the running man. It was really a story about two prodigals, not just one, and, and how God redeemed one and how the other we were kind of left hanging. Uh, you can listen to that online, but we were looking at the stories of those who heard the Savior call their name and they came home. And they came back. So today, uh, we're going to talk about redemption. Now, I want to define redemption as we're going to be talking about it more in the next few weeks with these redemption stories. And redemption is actually a money term. You know, you might think of it like as if you're going to get a coupon and you're going to redeem that coupon. We're going to kind of unpack this word redemption a little bit more over the next few weeks. But just kind of a, a basic definition is it is a money term that means to purchase or pay a debt. It means to make something valuable again. It means to make something that is worth less and make it valuable. It redeems things. Now, the idea of redemption, it gives us a clear, a clear picture of a debt problem, a price that must be paid, and a purchase that is made. So when you think about redemption, I want you to think that redemption isn't, I'm, you know, I've got Jesus, I'm redeemed. No, there's, redemption says you've got a debt problem, and there's a price that must be paid, and a purchase that is made. And, and that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. The price was our life, but Jesus instead gave His life, and purchased us and redeemed us. He took our life that was without value and became uh, the one who made us valuable again. He redeemed us. So we're going to be talking about that, what it means today. We're going to talk about the rise and the fall and the rise of a man and a woman of God. Uh, Focusing primarily on the man's story, but this is actually a story about a man and a woman. Uh, Maybe you've heard of them, David and Bathsheba. And we're going to unpack, this is this guy, he's the greatest king of all of Israel. In fact, the, the entire idea of Jerusalem is centered around that that's called the city of David, uh, or the, the capital of David. His, the city of David is actually Bethlehem, in which the, which is just a, a, a day's, uh, you know, a, like a half hour, hour walk outside of Jerusalem. It's just a few miles outside of town. And that's where David was born. And it was the birthplace of Jesus. Jesus was born in the city of David. And the Messiah sits on the throne of David. And so when you think of David, you think of this, man, the entire Old Testament is shaped around who David is and what is established through his throne and what the people of of Israel are looking forward to today and that Jesus fulfills the kingdom of David. And guys, 
this is a story of redemption that is really unique. And we're going to talk about some things today that are kind of a little difficult for many of us to talk about. Because we're going to talk about sexual sin. We're going to talk about lying and deception. We're going to talk about the path that led him to a fall. But we're also going to talk about his redemption and how he came home. So um, this basically, David set the stage for the Messiah, for Jesus. He's a great man and leader, but it was also a marriage that was never intended to be with the most infamous adultery in history. And uh, this is the story of how he was redeemed and how he grew to be the star that is David. So let's kind of look at the rising star first, the rise of a star. David was a rising star. He was a political leader. He had political triumph. Uh, There was a king prior to him, the very first king of Israel. His name was Saul. He started off great, but he wound up a mess. And Saul fell into terrible sin and rebellion. And David uh, came in and rescued Judah. Years later, uh, took over Israel uh, with the fall of Saul, gave rise to David, and he united a a divided kingdom. He established Jerusalem as the capital city, and he began to build a brand new, united, beautiful kingdom. So he had incredible political triumph. He also was one who brought incredible spiritual triumph. David was a guy who, who finally established a center of worship. And the Ark of Covenant, which was in hiding out in the boonies, he went, he found it, and brought it back to the capital city of Jerusalem, established Jerusalem as the center of, of, of knowledge of who God is, and, and established a place of worship there, reestablished the tabernacle of God, began to build and plan and gather materials for a great worship temple unto the Lord. I mean, he established the heart of the people back on God, and he also wrote hundreds of worship songs. We sing them still today, and they're found in the book of Psalms, which means songs. He wrote the majority of them. He was a great spiritual leader, great spiritual triumph. And then he was also one who had great military triumph. I mean, this is a rising star. This was a guy who came in and not only took over a nation, but he began to wipe out the enemies around him that were, uh, you know, persecuting them and attacking them. And not only did he triumph over the enemies, he expanded his own kingdom 10 times its size within just a number of years. So he was a political leader. He was a spiritual leader. And he was an amazing military leader. So here's a guy who seemed like he was unstoppable. I mean, he was a rising star. But then it happened. A falling star. David, the fall. So let's take a look at that in 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is where it begins. In a verse 1, it says, In the spring, and by the way, it says when, it says when kings go off to war, the reason why spring is the time they go off to war is you got to think that Israel kind of has a similar, you know, their, their weather is not a whole lot different than North Texas. Uh, so Israel actually gets snow, they get cold weather, and when the spring hits and the ice begins to thaw, the armies head back out to the fields and they head back out to war. Uh, they don't tend to fight during the winter. So here it is spring, and the armies are heading out to war uh, to, to, to fend off their territories and to establish their reign. And uh, David, when he was supposed to go off, it said David sent Joab, that's his commanding general, out with the king's men uh, and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites. Uh, they besieged Rabbah. Man, they were doing great. But there's always a big but involved. But David remained in Israel, uh, in Jerusalem specifically. David remained in Jerusalem. 
See, bad things often start when you're not where you're supposed to be. We're going to see this throughout the life of David, throughout your life as well. Um, it says, one evening, verse 2, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace late night channel surfing. All right, he was out there surfing the Internet. He, you know, he got out of bed late at night. Uh, he was curious. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Uh, the woman was very beautiful. Now, this is important to know that, that they're not saying this was just a woman. This was a very beautiful woman. This is someone that he noticed that caught his eye, uh, somebody that he liked, somebody that he wanted. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, this, this servant, this, this friend of his, he says, um, who is this, this girl? And he said, this man said, uh, well, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, so he knew. He was told, she's taken. She's married. And he goes, well, go get her. So they sent for her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now, a lot of times people might put the blame on Bathsheba. She shouldn't have been out on the roof bathing and all that. You know what? That was pretty culturally normal. Uh, David knew that that was the time of day when women might be bathing. And it's not abnormal for a woman to be bathing on the rooftop. That is absolutely... She did nothing wrong. Bathsheba was not in the wrong. She was a good wife. She was a faithful wife. And we're going to find out her husband was a, a very honorable, a good, loyal man who loved God and uh, was a, who loved his wife. This was a couple that was, they were going places, man. They were, they, things were well. And David took advantage of Bathsheba. He, you know, you can't say no to the king. When you have some soldiers or some guards and some people show up and the king is requesting your presence, you don't know what's going on. She gets there and he begins to seduce her, pressure her, whatever the case is. We don't know, but we find out that David then slept with her. She was pressured, perhaps. Now, it says she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Now, what that means is that she had just finished her monthly cycle. Okay? If you're not sure what that means, uh, talk to your wife or your mama. Don't talk to your daddy. He'll get weirded out. So, it's a, it's, she, was at, she had just finished her monthly cycle. And so she was cleaning herself. She had, you know, during the monthly cycle, usually the, the women in that culture, oftentimes they go outside of town. They don't even stay inside of town. So she had just come back home and she was cleaning herself up. But if you guys uh, know much about how monthly cycles work, uh, shortly after your cycle, you're, you're that much more fertile. So the Bible says she was, she was fertile. All right. It says she went back home and the woman conceived. And sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. That's when you cue the soap opera music. Bum, bum, bum. So he didn't know that it was that time. Maybe he did. It didn't really matter to him. Maybe he thought that they were going to get pregnant or maybe he could get away with it or that it never happens. It doesn't always happen. Or, you know, sometimes when you're fertile, you just don't get pregnant. Well, it did. It happened. So she sent a message to say, you know what, I'm, um, she sent a word to David. So she didn't even go say, hey, David, I want you to know I'm pregnant. She like, she sent a messenger. She sent someone. It was a letter. But could you imagine opening that letter? And, you know, you just, man, you just got caught, man. You, you just, what, it's just about to unleash. So here's what David did. He did the right thing. And he conspired to kill her husband. 
David did not do the right thing. This is what happened. If you read on in chapter 11, it says that David calls her husband Uriah home. He's off at war. He's a soldier. He's, a, he's stationed out, of, uh, out on the military uh, uh, front lines. And he calls Uriah home. And he's thinking, you know, Uriah's been gone for a while. And his wife is missing him. Perhaps Uriah will go in and have relations with his wife. And then... Because she's pregnant, everybody will think that Uriah is the father. So just bring Uriah home. They'll have relations. Problem solved. Well, here's the problem. Uriah was a good man. And when David wakes up the next day after Uriah had come home, he wakes up to find Uriah was sleeping on the doorpost of his palace. And he's like, Uriah, what are you doing? He goes, I can't go home when all my friends and all these fellow soldiers are out at war. How can I go home and and relish in the love of my wife when all these great honorable men who are sacrificing their life can't be with their wives? He says, no, my king, I sit and sleep at your doorpost to honor them and to honor you. David's like, so David says, oh, what a great guy. So he says, why don't you come in and let's have dinner. So he has dinner and he starts to honor Uriah. He says, you're great. You're awesome. Man, what a, what a good man you are. What a good husband you are. Man, what a good soldier. And so while he's having dinner, he sends a letter to his general Joab. And he says, hey, Uriah is about to come back. And I want you to, bake, to make sure that he is put in the most dangerous place in the army on the front lines of the battle. Put him where the fighting is the worst, where the violence is the worst. Because if he's not going to have relations with his wife, we need to make sure he dies. So Uriah hugs and thanks David, pledges a, a vow of faithfulness to David, and David sends him on his way. And just as David had commanded, Uriah goes to the most violent places of the battle and is, uh, is murdered. Is killed. So in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, it says, After the time of mourning was over, after everybody was cried, after the funeral, after a season of, of sadness and just going through the motions, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Now, David's going to play the honor card. Oh, how sad. How sad. Let's all, let's all pledge a... Thankfulness to Uriah. What a good man. Thank you, God. He was such a, what a good husband. And what a good man he was. And they had this wonderful recognition of how great he was. And you know, just to show that he's not going to leave this good man's wife destitute, he calls her to his house. And what an honorable thing. He's setting himself up as some sort of hero. He brings this destitute widow into his house. And now... He provides a son for her. They don't know the timetable of all this, but she has a son. And now the son becomes a symbol of his heroism. That somehow he's some sort of great man because of this. But they thought they had dodged a bullet. But they didn't. It says this, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now I want you to realize the fall of David. This rising star that did amazing things, he fell like a, like a comet to the earth. This is his, his sin. Uh, his sins were laziness, uh, pride, arrogance, of course, lust, adultery, 
uh, more lies, uh, murder, deception, a political cover-up, an abuse of authority. Man, he was drunk on power and he used his position to pressure her and to pressure others and to ultimately bring a death to a person who was a good man. David had fallen deeply and darkly. God's response to this was not a slap on the wrist. God sends the prophet, Nathan, who happens to be a very dear friend of David. David is sent uh, to, uh, by God, a friend to confront the sin in his life. And Nathan meets with David. He says, David, I want to tell you a story. He says, there's the story of this very rich, wealthy man who has plenty and many, I mean, countless sheep. And there's a poor, destitute man who only has one sheep. But this rich man, in his arrogance and pride, caused this great banquet. And instead of killing one of his lambs for the meal, he steals the lamb from this poor, destitute man. And he takes the lamb, slaughters him, and serves him to his guests. And he says, David, what should we do about that wealthy man? And David, because he has a sense of justice, he says that is evil and wicked and that rich man must die for causing that poor man's life to be robbed from him. And then he drops the bomb on David and he says, well, David, you're that man. Let's look at it in chapter 12, verse 7. It says, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're the, not like you're the man. No, this is a bad, you're the man. This is a, you are that man. You're the man. Uh, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. And listen to all that God did for him. Remember, he, had, he, he was a rising star. He says, I anointed you king over Israel. That means the spirit of God was on you in a powerful way. He says, and I delivered you. From the hand of Saul, man, I saved your life. Saul was always looking to kill him. And he says, I preserved, I saved you, I delivered you. He says, and I gave you your master's house. He says, you know what? When you were homeless, living in caves, I turned it around and gave you the palace and and your master's wives into your arms. He says, you know what? All that was his was now yours. And I gave you all of Israel. And I gave you all of Judah. And he says, and if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. He says, you were, man, I believed in you. I trusted you. I saw things in you that you never saw in yourself. And he says, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. He says, yeah, it might have been somebody else. It might have been the enemy's sword that was put through him, but it was really you who put it through him. You are the killer. Then David said to Nathan, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin you are not going to die. Now we're going to unpack what really happened with his redemption in that one verse. But God did forgive him. He, uh, he did get back on track with God and he became an even greater leader. And we're still talking about him today. What I want to do is I want you to realize he was redeemed. He was not perfect. He continued to make a few mistakes, but he walked in the redemption and grace of the Lord. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at basically his downfall and to help you to avoid that kind of downfall if you're heading in that direction. And then we're going to look at how he rose out of the ashes of his 
fall. So what I want us to do is using that story, and we're going to look at some other passages, I want us to take a look at what to watch for. There's four verses that tell us five things to watch for. These are five things that can prevent another fall if you've been there, or five things that will prevent the fall that you're headed towards. And the first thing is this, uh, five things to watch for. By the way, this isn't just for guys. Even though the story is about, is about David falling, we're going to read a story in a moment about a woman who falls Uh, But I want you to realize this is for men and for women. This is, you know, sin, uh, deception, uh, lies, adultery, lust is not just a man problem. It is a people problem. It is a man and woman. It is a young adult problem. So here's the first thing. It's just expressed differently. Is Here's the first thing is we are to watch for temptation. Always be ready. Guys, listen, it's not a matter if temptation will come. It's about when temptation will come. We can't, there's not a person in this room that will ever be able to avoid temptation. Maybe your temptation isn't uh, sexual in nature. Maybe it's uh, some sort of other addiction or some sort, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's rage, maybe it's deception, maybe it's lies, maybe it's hatred. Whatever it is, the enemy knows your weakness and he will try to bring you and destroy your life based on how he can get into your life with temptation. So we must always be aware. We need to know what our weakness are, weaknesses are. We need to know what our temptations are. Are In verse uh, 1 of chapter 11, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, uh, David remained. You see, he wasn't where he should have been. Temptation has a way of finding us when you're in the wrong place. And, and we need to watch for temptation. We need to be careful to avoid certain situations where we know we will be tempted. We need to possibly avoid traveling alone. Or, or, or as a pastor, there's some things that I avoid. I, I do not travel um, you know, with women for sure. And I try not to travel alone. Sometimes it's, it's beyond my ability. I don't rarely ever, ever travel. I think I've traveled alone once in the, in the last maybe, you know, 10 years, uh, like, like really traveling. Uh, I never counsel alone or with the door closed. We need to avoid certain temptations that we know that we might be uh, challenged or faced with. Uh, Some of those things, maybe you need to avoid going to certain movies or going to a certain club or going to that certain restaurant or avoiding uh, certain times when you're on the internet, whatever it is. We need to avoid situations because that eliminates half the problem. You might think, well, not me. (laughs) I'm strong. I'm mature. I'm a grown-up, or that's not my weakness. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Guys, listen. Some of you, you like to live right on the edge of danger. And you this is the edge right here. And that's that's falling. That's like failure. That's 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 the kind of thing that could ruin your life. And you like to just then just stand right on the edge. Because you think you're so strong that you can avoid that one last step. If you think you're standing firm, be careful. Friends of mine, man, I see it all the time in ministry and in real life who fall into adultery. I've seen women and men fall into adultery in ministry. It happens too often. Marriages, families, sexual addictions, uh, futures are ruined. Guys, listen, 60% 
of men commit adultery and 40% of women commit adultery. This is, this is not just a male issue. This is a, this is a person issue. This is a challenge. No one says today, no one wakes up and goes, you know what? I think today I'll destroy my life with sexual sin. I think today's the day that I will cut off the relationship with my kids possibly forever. I think this is the day when I'm going to get fired because I can't control myself on the computer at work. I think, you know, we must watch and look out for, for where temptation is, and we need to be careful about where that takes us by avoiding where we will find it. Now, it doesn't solve the heart issue of temptation, but, it, you know, 50% of the struggle is putting yourself in places where you shouldn't be. Here's the second thing is you need to watch your time alone when no one sees you. In, in chapter 11, verse 2, it says, Now David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. Man, who knows what he was looking for? But he was alone. He was susceptible. And uh, knowing that women were out there possibly bathing, a lot of our battles surface when we are alone. And if you know that it happens when you're alone, then you need to put safeguards up in your life because trying to stand against temptation is not the answer. We're going to talk about that in a second. We're not ever called to stand against temptation. We're called to flee temptation. We're going to talk about that in a second. But some of us, we need to watch our time alone. It doesn't, I mean, it's almost impossible to ever not be alone. But if you know that when you're alone, those are the moments when you're most tempted, then you need to basically put in safeguards when you're alone to make sure that you protect your life, your family, your future. Here's the third one is you need to watch what you watch. Second Samuel 11, 2 says, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Guys, it is not a sin. Women, it is not a sin to acknowledge a beautiful person. There's not, I mean, God creates beautiful people. I think all of you are beautiful people. But there, you know, let's be honest. There are people that are just, you know, beautiful. That's all. That was, that was a terrible thing to say. <laughs> But you know what? It's not a problem to acknowledge it, but it is a problem when you keep on noticing it. It is a problem when you begin to see the word saw when he saw a beautiful woman. It's not like he goes, oh, you know, and then he saw the word there is the word ra'ah, which means gaze. It means an extended saw. It means an extended gaze. You see, there's two responses, men and women, when you see someone who's good looking. The person is, oh, that's a nice looking person. And move on with your life because you're faithful to your heart and to God and to your spouse. Or you can go, hubba, 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 chauga, chauga, you know, and like some sort of cartoon, your eyes pop out and your tongue unravels and rolls across the floor. And you're like, oh, yeah. You know, it's like you've never seen those cartoons, you know, over in the old days. You know, and they're like, that is a raha. That is an extended gaze. And that's when a, an acknowledgement of God's creation turns into sin. We need to watch what we watch. Think, you know, web monitoring a software, filters, watching what you have on your phone and your computer. It's not just for my family, it's for me. Uh, where, you know, where you, where do you ra'a? Do you ra'a? Do, do you have problems in, in the chat room or in TV, on TV, in books, in magazines, at the gym, at work, or even at church? You need to watch what you watch. Here's the fourth thing. You need to watch your company. 
And I think this is interesting in, in, in uh, chapter 11, verse 3, it says, David sent someone to find out about her. Man, the man, his friend, came back and said, isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent some more of his buddies, some people to go get her. Uh, who were these guys? At, at some point, somebody should have set up and said, David, psh, 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 she's married, you're stupid. Don't destroy your or her life. They never spoke up. They never said stop. They never warned him about the direction in which he was going. They just went along. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And I think a lot of times, because we think we're so strong and we're never going to fall, we sometimes spend too much of our time with company that is shaping us into people of bad character, bad choices. And just as much as we need to surround ourselves with people who are of the right character, we are also to be surrounded with people of right character. It says in Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. There's this sense that, you know, when we're around the wrong people, it dulls our senses and crushes our character. But when we are around the right people, then that is like a, a sword sharpening each other's edges, becoming sharper and more aware and alert and more prepared for battle. Guys, listen, that we are called to have friends if you are a Christian who are not Christians. That's, that's a beautiful place in a relationship that you must have. But you need to be aware and watch how much time you spend with that company because if it begins to shape your character in places that, that God has called you to be different in, then you need to maybe pull back or change the relationship. You need to ask, what are friends telling you? Who are you hanging around you know, people that say, hey, let's go to that club. Let's go to that show. Let's go see that girl. Let's go see that guy. They could be leading you right into a mess. And you're going right along with them. See, David had a friend that was of good character. His name was Nathan. He was also a prophet. And Nathan took a big risk to confront David. Nathan helped David get back on track. We need friends like Nathan. And maybe you need to be a friend like Nathan. Maybe you have a friend who, like David, is heading in a direction that is destructive. You need to be a Nathan. Or maybe you need to be a David who is willing to accept a Nathan to confront you. So here's the fifth thing. Watch the moments of decision. Watch the moments of decision. Um, In uh, verse 4, it says, David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now, we often think he slept with her. That was the moment of decision when he went and got her and brought her in. No, the moment of decision was not when he slept with her. The moment of decision was a series of decisions that came prior to that. Let me show you an example of this. Um, I've got my dominoes. I've got my, uh, this is what life is. Life is this. Without these. Life is a series of pivotal moments, a series of choices and decisions. See, a lot of times, what was the moment that David blew it? What was that pivotal moment when David actually ended up sleeping? See, was that that the moment when he slept with her? Was adultery the moment? No, that was not the moment. The moment was all of them. 
The, you see, sin is always sequential. Sin is always sequential. That moment when you decide which way you're going to go and what you're going to do, sin does not just happen. The first sin was saying, I'm not going off where I should be. I'm not going, I'm not going to show up. I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to fight the battle with my friends. I'm not going to be committed to what I've committed to. The moment was when he stayed back. That was one of the first moments. You see, often the sins of commission are a result of sins of omission. When we don't do what we're supposed to do, it often leads to sins that we should not do. You see, James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So stop blaming God for that temptation. Verse 14, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and, and enticed by his own lust. The word lust there applies to a lot of things. Whatever your struggle is, whether you're lusting for uh, another experience of drunkenness or uh, another high or another fit of rage or another some sort of rampage of, of just kind of gossip or, or could be lust. He says, you know, whatever your enticing struggle is that has, a, has you by the throat, he says, we are carried away by those things. And he says, and then this lust, our desires... Uh, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it is accomplished, gives forth death. You see, this whole idea is that sin begins in the heart and in the mind, and it's like it's like being pregnant. And and there's this there's this picture, he says, when it's conceived, he says, the lust, the challenges, the things we desire, the cravings that are unhealthy, that we this those things that we allow in our life that build up temptation, that build up that lust, that's like, that's like being pregnant. And he says, but eventually that baby is going to have to come out. Eventually you will not be able to contain the secret. Eventually people will see what is happening in your life and you will conceive. And when it does conceive, it will be something that is not going to be a cute and cuddly baby. But he says, when it's conceived, it is going to be something that will bring death. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And then verse 16, he says, so don't be deceived. I call that spiritual LSD, lust, sin, death. A lot of times we are, we think it's okay to entertain lust because as long as we're not acting on it, but what you're doing is you're, you're allowing yourself to conceive and, and to grow inside something that will eventually have to come out. So we're talking about runners, and sometimes running is a slow fade. Sometimes you don't even see it. Small, unwise choices. Let me give you an example. Small, unwise choices that lead up. You know, I used to do dominoes when I was a kid, and I loved dominoes. We got all these choices in his life that led up to that moment where he fell off the edge. All those moments, being alone, not being where he should be, not changing the environment in which he's in, not looking out for the people and surrounding himself with people that would encourage him to do the right thing. We have all these choices, every one of them. He could have avoided that place. Listen to this. I want to read a story to you in Proverbs that shows, it's one of the few actual stories in Proverbs that shows a sequential fall. And then we're going to wrap up really fast with how David rised again. So, uh, so Proverbs 7 Small and wise choices often lead to big bad ones. Uh, 
Every one was a moment of decision. Saying no to a lunch with a married woman or no when you're half naked in a room months later, which is easier. So here's the story. Proverbs 7, verse 6 is where we're going to pick up. It says, At the window of my house, I looked out through the lattice, and I saw among the simple, that means the naive, the young, the, those that, that don't have life experience, I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men a youth who lacked judgment, someone who uh, thought that he knew better, who lacked wisdom, and who didn't listen to counsel. He was someone who wasn't listening. He was not wise. So it says, he was going down the street near her corner. Who's the her? Well, we're going to find out. Walking along in the direction of her house at twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. So there's like, man, there's a whole series here. Man, you see what's going on. Uh, You see, dumb choice number one was walking towards her, right? Maybe to catch a glimpse, maybe to say hello, maybe just to see her her smile, just to see her face, maybe to catch a glimpse of her in whatever she's wearing today. We see these series of things that could have been avoided, but he instead decided to go towards her. But most people think, I can't fall. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins committed are outside the body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. What does that even mean? That means that when you sin, it doesn't just hurt others, it hurts you when it comes to sexual sin. See, sexual sin breeds a sense of lack of trust and insecurity and anxiety and fear. And instead of fleeing sexual temptation, we often try to resist sexual temptation. But the Bible doesn't say resist sexual temptation. It says to flee sexual temptation. Temptation. The Bible says we are to resist the enemy. We are to resist Satan, but flee temptation. And we often flip it around. We do just the opposite. When trials come, when trials come, when problems come, when the enemy attacks us, we run from the problems. Instead, we are to resist the enemy and stand in our trials and problems. But we often run from them. And when we are tempted, We try to stand strong in our temptation, and we lose. We often do just the opposite. When trials come, we run. A fool is someone who ignores wisdom. You know the redneck jokes, you might be a redneck if. Well, here's a couple of you might be a fool if. You might be a fool if you're married and you have a close friend who's of the opposite sex. You might be a fool if you are single and you think that messing around is acceptable since you are, quote, in love. This will lead to confusion and distrust. You might be a fool if you're dating someone and you know that person is not meant for you. You might lose your heart or lose your mind. You might be a fool if you entertain sexual language with a friend. You might be a fool if you surf the internet without, the, without a filter on your PC. You might be a fool. Proverbs 7.10 says this. Back to the story. He's walking towards this woman. Then... Out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute. She wasn't a prostitute. She just dressed like one. Maybe you know somebody like that. Basically, it means she dressed. She was dressing like ultra sexy, dressing to pick up. And it says this, dressed like a prostitute with crafty intent. Now, again, we're, this is a story about a, a woman, but you could turn the story around and put a woman 
in the place of the one walking towards temptation and a man being this exact same way. So this is not a slam on women, men and women. This is interchangeable in how this happens. So it goes on to say, we knew her intentions. It says, she is loud and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. And I mean, she's like, ha ha, drawing attention. She likes to be the center of attention. She's drawing as much attention. She's dressed to seduce and she's loud. She's trying to get attention. She, she's never at home, meaning that she despises her family. Things are bad at home. Things are bad with her parents. They, you know, things are not healthy. Things are not right at home. She, her feet never stay at home. She's married in this case. And we're going to find out that her and her husband have a terrible relationship. And uh, now in the street, now in the squares and at every corner, she lurks. Man, she's looking out. She gets around. Dumb choice number two, he's hanging around her. He's just hanging out with her, hanging around with her, talking with her, entertaining conversation. Verse 13, she took hold of him and kissed him. So they're just hanging out. They're just no, no big deal. And all of a sudden, she like grabs him and kisses him, right? And you're like, what? And it says, and with a brazen face, she said, I have fellowship offerings at home. I'm going to explain that in a minute. But here's a bad choice number three. Uh, he kissed her. Or you might go, she kissed him. Well, he, remember, that kiss became as a result of his poor choices. So she said to him, I have fellowship offerings at home, you know, and I fulfilled my vows. Basically, that means I went to church. Now let's party. She goes on to say, so I came out to meet you. Dumb choice number four. Uh, he stuck around. He goes, and she says, I looked for you and have found you. You know, some people are just predators. Some men, women are just predators. Some women, men are predators. They're looking for you and you could be anybody that's like you. Okay. He goes, I've, she says this, she says, I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. She's got the fancy sheets on. Boom, chicka, wow, wow. She's got fancy sheets on. She goes, I performed my bed. I perfumed my bed with myrrh from Bed Bath & Beyond. I perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. She goes, she she sprayed the bed sheets, got fresh, clean, exotic sheets on. It smells wonderful. She wants, let's go hop in it. She goes, come, let's drink deep in the love, in love till morning. Man, she's getting put, you know, this is where you cue your favorite love song. Oh, night long, all night, all night. She goes, let's deep, let's drink deep all night long, right till the morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. By the way, this isn't love at all. This is not love. This is lust. See, the world likes to do the same thing, trying to tell us what love is, but it's not love. There's nothing meaningful there. There's man, they're out to to prey on people, to to suck you into. They're not looking out for your future. They're looking out for their now. He says, "Come, let's drink deep in love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love." And then she says, "My husband is not at home and he's gone on a long journey. That means no one's going to find out cuz no one's home." And a young person, a single adult, uh, your roommate's out or your parents are gone or you're married and your husband's out of town or you're out of town. It's like, man, we'll never get caught. No one will know. Come on. So she, he took his purse filled with money 
she said about her husband, and he will not be home till full moon. That means he's going to be gone for a long time. He's got plenty of money, and full moon means about a month. So dumb choice number five, he entertained sexual talk and suggestions. With pervasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once, he followed her. He didn't see it coming. How did he get there? Well, many of us, we didn't see it coming until it's too late. And this is what happened. He had a series of sequential choices that he knew were there, but chose to ignore because somehow he thought he was stronger. And then he thought maybe he could resist. And then he thought maybe no one would find out. And then he thought, hey, what the heck, you know? What's it hurt? We're consensual. What's the big deal? And these series of choices, you know, it reminds me of, and I've shared this story in the past, of, of how hunters uh, catch wolves in the snow. What they'll often do is they'll, they'll take a knife and they'll coat the, blo- uh, the entire blade of the knife in animal blood. And they'll allow it. They'll allow the blade to freeze and they will dip it in blood and allow it to freeze and dip it in blood and allow it to freeze until it's a giant blood popsicle. And then they prop it in the snow and the wolf with its great scent finds the blood of this animal, this, this delicious blood popsicle begins to lick it mm, and begins to lick it faster and faster and faster until the edge is bare feverishly licking the blade, his craving for blood, and he doesn't even realize that the blood that he is craving is his own. As the razor-sharp sting on his tongue grows numb, his insatiable thirst for his own blood, craving more and more, getting weaker and weaker, eventually he dies, succumbed to his own temptation. He didn't see it coming. And all at once, he followed her. And he was over. This is what it says in Proverbs 2, 7, 22. All at once he followed her. Dumb choice number six, he went to her house. Notice the word pictures that are about to follow. Total devastation, like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare. That's a trap. Little knowing it will cost him his life. It leads to personal disaster. I tell you, this sin that you're messing around with and toying with, it might cost you more than you're willing to pay. It may cost you more than you realize. Those choices will put you right over the edge. Proverbs 7, 24, the writer says, Now then, my sons, listen to me. This is the writer, and I implore you, listen then, my sons and my daughters. Listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her path. Many are the victims she has brought down, or he. Her slain are a mighty throng. It's just, and it's a devastation trail. Her house is a highway to the grave. Some translations, instead of saying grave, say hell. It's like, he's on a highway to hell. That's exactly, it says her house is a highway to hell, leading down to the chambers of death. Man, you know why God hates sin? Because he loves you so much. And he's challenging us to avoid the great fall so that we might be able to walk in the joy that he has for us. Sin is fun for a season. I, it is. I, I tell you, it is. Sin is fun for a season. But it always ends in a fatal attraction. Proverbs 5.3 says, 
for the lips of an adulteress drip honey. It doesn't say it t- the lips of the of the uh, doesn't say the lips of the adulteress taste like Tabasco sauce. It doesn't like say the lips of the adulteress are like habanero. Woo, a little too spicy. Burns. No, it says it's like honey. That means it's like candy. And her speech is smoother than oil. That means her, her breath smells like, like beautiful fragrance. It's not like, it doesn't say her lips taste like Tabasco sauce and her breath stank. It says, man, her lips were like honey and her breath was like, mmm, it tasted so good. It's fun, it's pleasurable. But then it says, but in the end, she's as bitter as gold, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death and her steps lead straight to the grave. Sin is fun for a season, but it always ends in a fatal attraction. So I want to end in the next couple minutes with this. How did David, after the fall, find redemption? Very quickly, very fast. Here's how. David's way back home. Uh, We see it in the story in uh, verse um, 13. It says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. What really happened with David? We find it in his songs. Remember, he wrote a lot of songs. And in Psalms, he wrote several psalms or songs as a brokenness cry unto the Lord that actually tell, tell us more about his redemption and his brokenness. And here's the steps home that David had. Is Number one, he was broken. He was authentically humbled. He had authentic humility. Uh, he wasn't just sorry because he got caught. He didn't just feel bad because he got caught with his hand in the cookie jar that he realized, man, I did a bad thing to Uriah. Man, I feel just really bummed out about it. No, it says he had authentic humility. And in Psalm 51, the psalm that he wrote as a cry of repentance after Nathan talked to him, he uses words like, I'm crushed, I'm broken, I'm contrite, which means I'm, I'm crushed. It means I, I'm worthy of judgment. I have sinned. And then he says, God, cleanse me, wash me, renew me, restore me, forgive me, create in me a clean heart. Beautiful out of Psalms 51. Psalms 32 he uses the same words as a cry of repentance for the exact same issue. So number one, he was broken. Number two, he acknowledged and confessed his sin. He made no excuses. He didn't say, well, man, if she hadn't have been on the roof, God, if you didn't make people so pretty, God, if you hadn't, you know, worn me out, if, if I hadn't been so tired, and you know, God, I just wanted a break. I just wanted to stay back. You know, he said, man, I've just been, I've just been working hard. I needed a break. I'm sorry. I was. He didn't make excuses. He said, I have sinned. He didn't blame anybody. You see, the difference between Saul and David, because Saul fell as well, and he fell hard. The difference between Saul and David and what made David great again is that Saul blamed other people and turned to himself, but David took responsibility for his actions and he turned to God. 1 John 1, 9, we must confess our sin. This is what it says. If we confess our sin, that's you, that's me. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just, will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What do you need to confess? Who do you need to confess it to? Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He says, you know what? You might sin again. You might struggle again, but thank God we got Jesus. And if you just confess your sin to him, he will forgive you. We must confess and acknowledge our sin. Number three, he received God's grace. 
And this is kind of hard for a lot of people. We do this through Christ. He received God's grace. Look at what it says in Psalm 32. This is a psalm of one of his repentance songs. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped in the heat of the summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. That's confession. He says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave. He received forgiveness. You forgave the guilt of my sin. See, guys, listen, this is, this is kind of a pet peeve of mine. Nowhere in the Bible does it say forgive yourself. A lot of people say, well, we've forgiven you. It's time to, you just need to forgive yourself. We all make mistakes. Nowhere in the Bible does it say forgive yourself. What it does say is that we need to humbly receive forgiveness. See, that's acknowledging that we're not worthy of it and that we have blown it and that we did wrong, but we receive and accept the grace that God is extending to us. See, some of you, you think the answer is in forgiving yourself, and you think that power lies in yourself, but grace and freedom is not found in yourself. And no matter how much you forgive yourself, unless you learn to receive the grace that God is giving you, you will never be free. David understood this. And this is the, the next thing. He accepted the consequences of his actions. In 2 Samuel 12, 9, 9 through 14, Nathan says, you know what? God has forgiven you. He says, but you will experience chaos and uh, calamity in your home. He says, your kids are going to fight with you a lot. Um, they're going to despise each other because you've had, now because you have multiple wives, the kids of these different wives are going to hate each other. They're going to attack each other. And in David's life, some of his own sons had murdered each other. One of his sons even raped one of his other sisters. And he says, you know what? Because of this life that you've asked to have, you brought calamity and chaos into your home. And he says, what you did in secret, all this calamity is going to be shown in public. He says, so just be prepared. God says, there are consequences to your actions and he says, and by the way, this, this child that she is pregnant with isn't going to survive either. And David didn't say, I hate you, God, forget it. Who needs forgiveness? No, he accepted and received God's grace, and he also accepted the consequences. He understood that his actions brought pain to his family. And here's the last thing is he corrected his course. He corrected his course. He changed his direction he became the husband he needed to be. And the marriage that should not have been becomes one of the great love stories of the Bible where David and Bathsheba became stars in the story of Jesus. Bathsheba, this woman who was despised by many people by the end of her life, was a dynamic woman of God. And when, it, when you read about the life of Jesus and it talks about the people in his family, they mention Bathsheba because of the redemption of Jesus because of what God did in her life. David was not perfect. He made mistakes, but he walked in grace. Today is a moment of decision for some of you. You could remove that process and never make it to the cliff. Today could be a change for you. Colossians 1.3 says this, and I want to pray for you. For he has rescued us from the dominion of weakness, the uh, dominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Guys, God wants to redeem you. Maybe you've fallen. Maybe you've, made, maybe you've already taken the dive. Maybe you're on a process. Maybe you're on a path of destruction. Wherever you are, if you will 
broken and with humility, find yourself at the feet of the cross and confess your sin to Christ. And and many times you need to confess your sin to those who you have hurt as well. Then receive the grace of God, accept the consequences of your poor choices, change your course and watch what God can do in your life from this point forward. Let me pray for you. God, thank you that, God, you redeem the runners. God, that our life, though it's made up of a series of choices, today is the greatest choice that we'll ever have to make, and that is the choice to follow you, the choice of whether we are going to live for you or we're going to run from you. So, God, I pray right now that we would search our heart for the moment right now that is necessary to change the course of our life forever. I want you right where you are just to talk to Jesus. Just talk to God. Say, God, just talk to him in your own words. Acknowledge that that you're a sinner, that you've fallen, that you've broken uh, his plan for your life. And, And with humility, humble yourself before the Lord. Acknowledge that we're not perfect. I mean, God came for those that are imperfect. He came for us. He came for you so that we could find forgiveness at the cross. Confess your sin to God right now. Just say, God, forgive me of my sin. God, I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Wash me clean. I receive your grace. God, I receive your forgiveness. I don't deserve it. I have wronged you. I have wronged people in my life. I have hurt people. But God, I receive your grace even though I don't deserve it. God, help me to understand this this valuable truth of your grace. God, I will accept the consequences that my choices have, have caused. And I will change the course of my life to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, some of you, the next step for you is to, to talk to somebody. Maybe you need to talk to your Nathan, your friend. Or maybe you need today, be a Nathan, go confront a friend. Or maybe you need to go to a family member to a friend and confess your sin so that you can be held in accountability with each other. All right, God's grace is good, isn't it? He redeems. He redeems us. Next week, bring somebody who needs redemption because we're going to continue this journey of the runners coming home. Thank you for listening to the Living with Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.